Hello, I'm Caroline Jones and welcome to another of my podcasts looking at the archives and the history of Wellington College. Now, as the Master said in his assembly this week, the 18th of June is Waterloo Day, the date of the Battle of Waterloo, an anniversary that we always remember at college. However, 50 years ago, on the 18th of June 1970, a Thursday, so 50 years ago to the day, something else happened. There was a general election in the UK. And what's more, it was the first British general election in which anyone 18 years old or over was allowed to vote. Because an act had been passed the previous year bringing the minimum voting age down from 21 to 18. So for the first time ever, Wellington's oldest students were actually able to vote in an election. And even for the younger ones, voting would no longer have seemed such a distant prospect. So I thought it would be interesting to have a look at the impact of this in the college records. And when I did, I found that many of the issues which were discussed around that election were really shockingly relevant to today. So that's what I'm going to be talking about this week. I'll mostly be looking at the Wellingtonian magazine which came out in July 1970, a month after the election had happened, and also referring to other issues from a couple of years before or afterwards. So a poll conducted by the Wellingtonian about 18 months beforehand when the change to the voting age was actually being debated in Parliament, concluded that at least two-thirds of Wellingtonians, aged or approaching 18, wanted the vote and said they would use it. And that interest seems to have continued. The Wellingtonian, in July 1970, stated, The editor regrets he hadn't enough room for all the articles he received on the general topic of politics and the election. Another way that the college showed its interest was in holding its own mock election at the same time, with students as candidates for the various parties. Each candidate ran an election campaign in which they held meetings, gave speeches and did anything they could to encourage the other students to vote for them. This was nothing new. It had happened several times in college, the first time in 1921. Two mock elections had been held in the previous decade, in 1964 and 66, both again at the time of real general elections. Also, it seems that teachers encouraged the students to consider political issues. We have a list of questions found on a classroom board in June 1970, which seems to have been written by a teacher or perhaps a politically engaged student. I think these questions were addressed to Wellingtonians who would actually be able to vote encouraging them to think intelligently about the issues of the day. So let's have a look at them. It's not surprising that the first two questions are about economic issues. They are, which party can stop inflation by preventing the threatening wages and prices explosion? And which party can frame policies to get industrial growth up to 5% per annum? Of course, the economy always plays a major role in almost any election. It's perhaps more surprising, but also encouraging, that the third question is, which party really cares about the poor and foreign aid? We might frame that question differently today, but the issue is just as relevant. The fourth question, which party can produce partnership in industry, is perhaps symptomatic of its time, 
this was the beginning of the 1970s, a decade which saw a lot of strikes and industrial unrest in the UK. The fifth question is which party can handle the urgent problem of Northern Ireland? And in 1970, that really was an urgent problem. August 1969 had seen rioting and deaths on the streets of Ulster and British troops had been sent in. By 1970, barricades were going up, bombings were becoming common, the whole situation was getting worse. Northern Ireland is still a political issue today, of course, but we must be grateful for the huge process that's happened in the meantime to reduce the violence there. Now, the sixth question on the list is, which party can be trusted to get us into Europe? Now, I think it's fascinating that there isn't even a debate. There's an assumption that Britain entering Europe, or the European community as it was known then, is a good thing. So to give a bit of background to this, the UK had twice applied for membership during the 1960s, but both applications had been vetoed by the French president, Charles de Gaulle. Now that de Gaulle had retired, a third application had been made in 1969 and was now being considered by the Europeans. That application had actually been made by the Labour government, but it was the Conservative leader Edward Heath who was at the forefront of the campaign for Britain to join the EC. It seems that this assumption that Wellington students were in favour of the move was correct. In fact, in the college mock election, the candidates didn't necessarily stand for the same political parties as in the real election, and one candidate stood under the banner of a European Federalist. What's more, in a survey of political opinions among students carried out by the Wellingtonian two years later, 92% of them thought that Britain should enter the common market. That was by far the biggest percentage who agreed on anything. I wonder what they would have all made of the events of the last four years. The next question raises issues which are just as immediate now as they were then. It reads... Which party has the courage to face Powell on his own ground and disprove his forebodings? That the enemy in our midst will exploit immigration and prejudice until Wolverhampton is as violent as Harlem. This refers, of course, to the Conservative MP Enoch Powell, who was already notorious for his right-wing views and his opposition to immigration. He'd made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, and it's very sobering to remember that at that time he was very popular and many British people agreed with him. In fact, it was suggested at the time that he was responsible for the surge in the Conservative vote in this election. Then, just as now, race and immigration were critically important issues in Britain. Positive changes were beginning to be made. The Race Relations Act of 1968 had made it illegal to refuse housing, employment or public services to any person on the grounds of colour, race, ethnic or national origins. And in 1970, the South African cricket team's UK tour was cancelled because of protests about the apartheid re regime in South Africa. One of the protest campaign leaders was incidentally the future Labour leader, Gordon Brown. So, I find it encouraging that the writer of this list of questions believes that Enoch Powell should be challenged and that his dire warnings about the consequences of immigration should be disproved. Just as interesting, in this same issue of the Wellingtonian, 
there's a poem specifically about Powell. It's quite skilful. It paints a vivid picture of what the man looked like and what his appeal was to certain parts of the population. But it finishes by challenging him, challenging his views on race and liberty. That powerful poem was written by a Wellington student who would later become a well-known novelist, Sebastian Fawkes. To return to the list, we might perhaps be surprised by the foresight of the next question, which is, which party will take immediate action against further pollution of the environment? In 1970, the environment was just beginning to become an issue. Climate change was barely known about, but things like the use of pesticides and the aftermath of oil spills had brought the subject more into the public eye. And again, in this issue of the Wellingtonian, there's a stark student poem about pollution. It clearly mattered to some students. The last question is one which was probably more relevant to Wellingtonians than to society as a whole. It is, which party, if either, has a sufficiently broad-minded outlook to understand the younger generation, their emotions and their grievances? This is the end of the 1960s, it's a decade when youth culture has emerged as never before. Young people have their own fashions, their own music, and strong political and social views. Remember the Summer of Love of 1967 and the student protests of 1968. By comparison, Wellington students at the time were still, by and large, a very conservative bunch, with a large and a small c. But nevertheless, they identified in some ways with this generation gap. In this same issue of the Wellingtonian, there's an article which argues that this conflict between generations is now the strongest influence in society. The writer says that youth is a far stronger bond than nationality or religion now, and herein lies the real difference between the generations. Where the conflict was class, it is now generation. He asserts that what the youth want is not merely a vague idealism, but a vigorous desire for peace and prosperity for all, in a world where everyone can do their own thing. And that that desire for individuality was what made the young people fearful of being swallowed up in a seemingly mindless grey mass of bourgeois commuters. And on the back cover of this issue of the Wellingtonian, is an illustration of a guitar-playing rock musician with the famous lines by The Who, I'm not trying to cause a big sensation, I'm just talking about my generation. So, those were the issues which students were urged to consider in the run-up to the election. In the college's own mock election, as I've mentioned, the candidates did not all represent parties which were standing in the real thing. There was a Conservative candidate and a Liberal and, as I've mentioned, a European Federalist. There had also been one calling himself an independent fascist, but we're told that he withdrew his nomination after an extremely rowdy meeting which was engulfed in water bombs and fish cakes. The report of the election does concede that there was a real lack of any representation left of centre. The final college candidate was a Celtic nationalist, Again, perhaps a prophetic forerunner of the role that the SNP, Plythe Cymru and Sinn Féin play in modern politics. So, what happened? There were several meetings during which the candidates gave speeches and took questions, 
before the poll was finally held. 481 students voted, and the result was extremely close and needed several recounts. Eventually, it was found that the European Federalist had won with 163 votes, just ahead of the Conservative with 160. The Liberal candidate got 111 votes, and the Celtic Nationalist, 30. And what happened in the real election? The incumbent Labour government under Harold Wilson was expected to win another term. But in fact, there was a surprise victory for Edward Heath and the Conservatives. It was that which provided the mandate for Britain to enter the European community in 1972. The Liberal Party did badly, halving their seats from 12 to 6. The Scottish National Party got one MP, and various Irish nationalists six. Plyth Cymru did not win any seats, but they did stand 36 candidates. Overall voter turnout in the election was low. Around a quarter of the 18 to 20 year olds who were newly eligible to vote didn't even register to do so, and fewer actually voted. Commentators blamed the surprise result on economic factors. There was an unexpectedly bad set of figures revealing a £31 million trade deficit, which had been published just three days before the election. They also suggested that a loss of national prestige after the England football team's defeat in the World Cup on the 15th of June had contributed to the Labour defeat. England were the defending world champions, and it was thought that their fortunes attracted much greater public interest than the general election did. In the event, they were defeated 2-3 by West Germany in the quarter-final. Yet another event which was to repeat itself in years to come. That's all for now. I'm going to be taking a bit of a break from these podcasts over the summer, but I'll be back in September to bring you more stories out of the archives. <laughs>